From Yahoo Finance, this is Electionomics. I'm Rick Newman. And I'm Alexis Christophorus. Today, we are talking about corporate America's response to the Trump presidency and how that may move the needle in the upcoming election. Here to talk about it with us is political strategist Bradley Tusk, who also runs his own venture capital firm, by the way, called Tusk Ventures, aptly named. We should also mention that Bradley was a campaign manager when Michael Bloomberg was running for mayor of New York City back in the day. Bradley, good to uh, good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you wrote a piece uh, that caught my eye and Rick's eye recently, and, and in it, you talk about uh, how uh, corporate America and specifically CEOs have responded to the Trump presidency. You say for most of them, they've responded with this sort of awkward silence, and you say yeah. they might not be able to afford to remain silent much longer. Talk to us about that. Why is yeah. that? Well, so I mean, look, most CEOs obviously want to stay out of politics as much as they can, because the way they look at it. Half the country thinks one thing, half the country thinks the other thing. So any position they take automatically you know, alienates half their customer base. So I get that. Um, but the question is, as Trump continues to kind of self-implode and things like COVID or George Floyd are just so mishandled, you get a point that your inaction becomes an action in and of itself, right? So in a normal election between two normal candidates, if you're a typical CEO and you choose not to be involved, that's usually fine, right? If you're a company that's very right-leaning or left-leaning, that might be different, but that's, that's not true of most companies. Um, but this year, uh, I think you have to think about what does your inaction say to your employees? Like we've seen, for example, you know, the New York Times, um, they, they ran one op-ed by a Republican senator and had a staff revolt and ended up having to change their whole leadership of their editorial page as a result of it. So what does it mean for your employees? What does it mean for your customers? What does it mean for your investors? Um, and there still will be some CEOs who will do all that math and say, you know what? Um, it's still really not worth getting involved. But there will be others that may say, as Trump kind of continues to sort of get more and more outlandish with each sort of passing day, there's a point where simply by staying out of this, I'm going down with the ship with him. And I don't want to do that. So what would you uh, advise Tim Cook at Apple or Satya Nadella at Microsoft to actually do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that at the very least, they've got to come up with a really clear matrix of here's why we typically don't get involved in elections. Um, here's why we might need to hear based on all the different stakeholders they have and also based on uh, what their needs are in Washington, right? So we know that Apple uh, is constantly facing some level of antitrust scrutiny. We know that they're dealing with privacy concerns in Congress. Microsoft has the same privacy issues to deal with. They've already had their share of antitrust issues in Washington. And so, look, if you think it's going to be a really close election and your view is, I don't know who's going to win, so I don't want to alienate the next president, then, yeah, maybe you do stay out of it. But if you take the CNN poll from last week that had Biden up by 14 as accurate, if you hit a point where all of a sudden we're in August, September, and Biden's up by double digits in every national poll and is up meaningfully in most state polls, especially in swing states, you may hit the point to say, it's going to be a Biden administration. It might even be a fully Democratic Congress. I have to get out ahead of that. Well, if you do it that way, that would that's basically just bandwagoning, isn't it? I mean, isn't that sure. the, the safe choice? Let me ask you it this way. If there were some meaningful uh, movement, let's say, among the business community and some prominent CEOs, uh, and, and it would be in favor of Biden, that's what we're talking about here, 
Yeah. Is there any chance that would move the needle? I mean, could that gain Biden, you know, one or two points in no. states? No. So it, it wouldn't move the needle with voters in the slightest. Um, so first of all, endorsements, in my experience, really mean incredibly little across the board, right? If Obama endorses someone in a Democratic primary, or if Trump endorses someone in a Republican primary, or if it's a very local, you know, for the DA of Manhattan and the Times weighs in, okay. But outside of that, no one really cares. Uh, and campaigns save vastly too much time focusing on endorsements. But if you have a world where all of a sudden all of these Republican officials like George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and Cindy McCain all say publicly, we're not voting for Trump. And then you have military leaders, or at least former military leaders, saying we are definitively not voting for Trump. And there becomes this cascade. If a hundred major CEOs join to the same thing, it kind of just creates a, a, a snowball effect. Uh, and so, while I don't think that any voter is looking to see who Tim Cook is for to base their own decision on who to vote, um, it could be one step, and ultimately kind of just producing kind of a, a widespread withdrawal support from Trump. But how important do you think it is for Trump to have the support of these Fortune 500 CEOs? Because more than any other president in recent memory, for me anyway, Trump has really tried to rally CEOs to the White House, especially early on in his presidency, right? It seemed like every other week there was a new committee he was forming with major CEOs on it. He was inviting them into sort of this revolving door at the White House. If, if some of them are seen as publicly sort of turning their backs on him, could that really work against him and work for Biden? You know, I, th I think what it does is it hurts Trump more than it helps Biden. So if you think about it, we're only really for this whole presidential election, there's like five to eight states that potentially matter. And within those five to eight states, 25 counties in total that matter. And then we're talking about a handful of people in those 25 counties um, that haven't already made up their minds. So it's a very, very tiny slice of the population. Again, I don't think they care what any particular CEO says one way or another. But uh, if you're on the fence and all of a sudden Trump's strength is supposed to be business and CEOs and they're consistently coming out for the opposition, it's just another reason in your head. And, and look, anyone who's sentient already is aware of Trump's sort of flaws, whether they still support him or not, but it becomes yet another one to take into, into your calculations. Hey, Bradley, so you were a uh, you were a, a, an informal advisor to Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign. Yeah. So so you were on you were on a team running against Biden. Um, what do you what do you see as Biden? You know, now that Biden's obviously the nominee, what do you see as Biden's um, strengths and weaknesses as he takes on President Trump from as somebody who campaigned? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reality is it, they're sort of the same thing, which is he's not Trump. Right. Uh, I'm not convinced. I think Alexis, you and I had this conversation on, on TV maybe last week, which is if Biden went on vacation from today through Election Day, I don't know if the result is any different whatsoever, right? Uh, this is the most polarizing known president in modern political history. And people are either going to vote for him or they're going to vote against him. And where Biden benefits is just by sort of not being particularly anything, right? He is not particularly divisive. He's not particularly ideological. Um, he's a genial, nice man by most accounts. And therefore, um, if you don't want to vote for Trump, you're not in this situation to say, well, I also I can't vote for Trump. I don't want to vote for Hillary or I don't want to vote for Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or whoever it is. Biden's just sort of totally a kind of a neutral like a Rorschach test almost. So you can make him out to be whatever you want. So, you know, I, bumper sticker. 
isn't it? <laughs> on the Rorschach test. I mean, stay in the no, basement. I'm, not, I'm either fish nor foul. I'm inoffensive. I mean, but you know, that's how he won the primary. If you think about it, he ran a totally conventional primary race, didn't take controversial positions, didn't really try anything particularly innovative in the way he campaigned uh, altogether. And he just kind of let every candidate implode. Uh, and he was a last man standing, and that made him the nominee. Uh, and that really may be the best strategy for November, too. Are you expecting, I mean, despite what the polls might be showing right now, it's still months away, are you expecting it to be a close race come November? You know, for on one hand, they're always close, right? Uh, if you look at the last 20, 30 years, you know, this country is so evenly divided that the popular vote's always within a few points, uh, give or take, either way. However, this is not like any other time we've dealt with, right? So if there's no vaccine by November, which now seems like that's going to be the case. And there's a second wave of viruses and deaths. And the economy keeps getting worse and worse and keeps imploding. Uh, and there continues to be racial unrest. You may hit a point where it's just so conclusive that Trump hasn't handled this well, that it may not be a close election. In fact, if you look at the real clear politics average where Biden is over Trump, I think it's 7.2% last time I checked, and then compare that to Hillary, both Obama campaigns, and Kerry, he's up significantly over where any of them were at this point in the election. So what can, uh, what do you, what does Biden need from Mike Bloomberg? Uh, Bloomberg um, endorsed Joe Biden. Uh, he said, you know, we've been friends for a long time. I'm behind him. I want to help him. Bloomberg obviously has all that money. Um, does Biden need his help? Is there anything Mike Bloomberg could or should be doing at this point? You know, look, I don't think Biden necessarily needs Mike's help to win. I think if, if Mike got involved or, or didn't get involved, I'm pretty sure the outcome in this case, because it's so extreme, would probably be the same. Where I think Mike's help really makes a difference is what kind of Congress will Biden have to work with, right? So will there definitely be a Democratic House and what kind of majority? Could the Democrats take the Senate back? Um, you know, one thing that Obama learned is it's great to win a, a mandate of voters, but if you don't if can't get stuff through Congress, it doesn't really matter, right? And so Biden, who spent most of his career in the Senate, knows that better than anyone. And so I think if I were Biden, I was asking Mike for help. In some ways, I'd say focus as much on the key senatorial races and House races as anything else. But look, uh, the one advantage Trump does have over Biden right now is economic. Uh, and if Mike Bloomberg put in $100 million or $300 million, um, would that be welcome? I'm sure it how, I don't know how much insight you have here, Bradley, but how receptive has the Biden camp been to Mike Bloomberg helping in some way? Yeah, it's a good, I mean, it's a good long-term relationship. There are a lot of people who have worked on Team Biden that are involved with Team Bloomberg. Um, Anita Dunn, who's Biden's top political advisor, her firm has been Mike's advisor for every one of his campaigns. Um, so there's there's a uh, Kevin Shiki, who was Mike's campaign manager in the presidential, is really close with Biden. So it, it's a close relationship. They've done a lot together over the years. Uh, in fact, when Mike endorsed uh, Obama in 12, it really was Biden calling him and saying, hey, we really need you. Uh, and that being um, what it took. So, um, so I, I think they're working together both on the campaign and then if Biden does win, you know, as president, uh, we'll be pretty easy. So, so I wanted to jump in there and ask, uh, ask a quick question. If Biden does win, does Mike Bloomberg take a cabinet spot? Has you know, it's, a great, it's a great question. Um, so on one hand, would I want Mike Bloomberg to be my secretary of, of Treasury or State? Yeah, right. He's 
really brilliant. He knows all the world leaders. He's incredible on policy. So on one hand, he'd be great. On the other hand, Mike has always said that he can't work for anyone else. He hasn't had a boss in 40 years or something like that. Um, and it's not clear uh, that he wants to first have one now at the age of 78. By the time the administration gets going, he'll be almost 79. On the flip side, if the President of the United States says your country really needs you, uh, maybe you just suit up and that's that. I would argue that you could be a Treasury Secretary without exactly working for somebody else. Uh, I mean, you know, the, technically you do, the president is your boss, but you do have a lot of autonomy in those jobs. I think secretary yeah. of state is different. Um, but I, th I would think of those two jobs, treasury would be more suited for Mike Bloomberg. I think it would with two potential caveats, and this is all wild speculation. But one, the far left, my guess is, would have maybe issues with Mike being treasury secretary because they would say, you're a titan of Wall Street, you're worth $60 billion. This is, you're not the paradigm of changing the face of economic inequality. We want someone like Elizabeth Warren in that job, not you. Now, Biden's not going to owe them his presidency and doesn't have to do what they want, but I imagine that he'll at least factor their voice into account, where a state is not an ideological job at all, right? It, it's an executional job. And I think Bloomberg LP has operations in 70 countries, 80 countries. Mike already knows most heads of state. And if you take the issue that he cares most about, climate change, um, that's probably the greatest perch to deal with it as Secretary of State um, and than anything else. So if you put all that together, I think there's a logical case for it. But yeah, look, one of the nice things for Biden is um, if he's able to win uh, without really needing Sanders' help and Warren's help, he can do whatever he wants. I Just as an aside, I think I'm trying to figure out a nice way to put it. I think Wall Street would panic if Elizabeth Warren became Treasury Secretary. That would be, be a terrible move. I, I agree with you completely. Absolutely. Um, but so if, you know, the whole progressive left says it's got to be someone like Warren and let's say Biden said, well, I want someone like Bloomberg. Um, do they settle at someone kind of in between who's sort of more acceptable, even, just a, even if it's just a more traditional Democrat uh, who's not necessarily an expert on the economy? I mean, there's been secretaries before, like Lloyd Benson, who are just Democratic politicians who kind of check enough boxes. So you could end up there. But I don't look, I don't know what Biden's going to be like in terms of appointing a cabinet, assuming he wins. There's one argument that say he's been a fairly conventional politician his whole career. He'll continue to be conventional and make conventional political picks. Or to say, look, the man's really old. He's probably only going to serve one term. He's gotten to the presidency. Just pick who you think would be incredible and amazing in every single job. And don't worry about party orthodoxy and don't worry about getting yelled at by Rachel Maddow or anything else. Just pick the people who you think can really execute your vision. And that's how you go down in, pres in history as a great president. Uh, that's what he should do. I'm not sure if it's what he will do. You bring up a really good point, his age, actually both of them, both Trump and, and Biden, although Biden is a little older. If uh, if Biden wins and he gets through that first term, or maybe he doesn't get through the first term, I don't know, uh, you know, it could fall on the shoulders of, the, of his VP. How important is the VP choice now? Could that really change things up? Because he said August yeah. 1, he's going to come out with that announcement. We're all expecting it to be a female. And he said as much. Yeah. There's been talk that it's going to be a, a, a black female. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, look, so normally my answer to the VP question would be the same as my answer to the CEO's endorsing question earlier, which is it doesn't matter, at least in terms of the election. If you look back, the last time where you can look at a VP selection and say, 
and made a clear difference in the outcome was, you know, Lyndon Johnson in 1960 for Kennedy. And that's not even because enough voters said, oh, Johnson's great, I'll therefore I'll vote for Kennedy. It's that they literally stole Texas for Kennedy. Uh, and that was enough electoral college votes to, to beat Nixon. So that worked really well, but that was 60 years ago. Since then, it's really hard to make a case that a VP matters electorally, other than maybe they can hurt a bit like Palin did uh, to McCain in 08. However, this year, uh, because Biden is so old and because of George Floyd and all of the unrest, uh, I do think um, that at least in terms of African-American turnout, if you had someone like Kamala Harris or Val Demings or Keisha Lance Bottoms um, as the VP, that could make a difference in places like Milwaukee, Detroit, Minneapolis, you know, states that Trump won by very narrow margins uh, in 16, that had there been stronger black turnout for Hillary, she would have actually won those states and therefore won the election. Um, It could make a real difference. Um, So I I do think this one actually matters a lot more than it usually does. But even more important than it mattering for the election, you're right, you know, Biden is, is, will be the oldest president we've ever had. Uh, And there's a good chance that either his vice president is the nominee in four years, or maybe even has to take over during the first term. And so who he picks is really important. So do you think it'll be Kamala Harris? You know, I think that's a perfectly reasonable pick. Personally, if I spent most of my career in, go- in government working in city government and state government, and I'm very biased towards mayors because they are chief executives, or even governors, they're chief executives, they do things. So to me, someone like Bottoms in Atlanta or Miro Bowser in D.C., who runs an actual city is more qualified in my mind to then run the executive branch um, than someone who's just a, a legislator. Now, with that said, Harris was the AG of California. That's a really big job. That is somewhat of an executive branch job. So I guess she has some executive branch experience. But if it were up to me, uh, Biden would pick a mayor or a governor. Can I go back to uh, what we talked about a few minutes back, how somebody like Mike Bloomberg with his money and his uh, organization could help Biden? And you said focus on uh, the Congress. So that really comes down to the Senate and it comes down to about half a dozen um, Senate seats. So since you're so familiar with how campaigns actually work, what what, what kind of help would make a difference in places like uh, Colorado, Georgia, Arizona and a few others where there are contested Senate seats Democrats could grab? I mean- uh, it's a sad answer, but it's it's money, right? So it's really going to be independent expenditure campaigns uh, on TV and digital, uh, either making the case to uh, dissuade you from voting for the other side, persuade you to vote for your candidate, or if you are a likely voter, get you to turn out and vote. Um, because you're going to see so many elections this year conducted solely by mail, and there are some states like Colorado that are already only by mail. Um, you know, the traditional GOTV operations of knocking on doors and canvassing and phone banks and all of that, I think are going to be a little less effective this year. Um, and it's going to be more around just reaching people with the right message. And that's where money makes a big advantage. If you can drop $20 million on a, on a Senate election uh, and TV ads, it's going to have a big impact. Why wouldn't he do it, right? I mean, he has the money. Yeah. He's been I mean, very active in... Yeah. Uh, it's, look, it, it's his call. It's his money. The one thing I've learned with Mike, uh, even when I ran his campaign and spent $109 million of his money, um, it's his money and he makes the decisions what to do with it. And uh, what I found is 
Mike, uh, because he's ha he's sort of in so many different worlds in business and politics and philanthropy, um, is really good about attracting the right people to each job and managing them. But that's where he wants your advice, right? So just like even though I run a venture capital fund, Mike's not calling me for you know early stage investment tips. Um, <laughs> you know he's 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 asking the money people about money, the political people about what races to engage in, the philanthropy people about where to spend his money uh, on causes. And so when it comes to why wouldn't he, I, my guess is he probably would, uh, but there's only one person that makes that decision and, and that's Mike. So just one more follow-up on that and then I'll, I'll, I'll yield to Alexis. What, so money helps in politics, but what helps the most? I mean, what do you spend that money on? I mean, we've now got digital ads. There's the whole question of positive ads versus negative ads. There's phone calls, there's get out the boat. What is the most effective way to take advantage of money in something like a Senate race these days, do you think? You know, it's even though I think this answer will hopefully not be true in 10 years and maybe even five years, today it's still TV, right? And people are right now, because we're all home stuck in a pandemic, watching a lot more TV than usual. And especially, by the way, if live sports does return, you're gonna have people shifting from streaming platforms back to regular cable uh, where they're watching ads. And then all of a sudden you're gonna see incredible amounts of money spent on NFL games, NBA games. I don't know if baseball ever gets their act together, but if they do, um, baseball and then on news, right? Whether it's cable news um, like you guys or, or even some of the network news. So that's where still most of it will go. Now there will come a world where everything will be streaming um, and you know there just will be so few eyeballs on live TV ads that they will have a different efficacy than they have today. Um, but that's number one. And the number two uh, would be digital. And what's interesting is, you know, because Rick asked specifically about Senate races, that's where it's really powerful. Interestingly, in the presidential race, because everyone knows who the candidates are and they get so much oxygen all day, every day, the money might weirdly matter a little less. Like Hillary significantly outspent Trump in 2016 and still lost because Trump was a master of earned media. He really understood how to get attention all day, every day. And that sucked up so much oxygen that Hillary's ads didn't make as much of a difference. But in most Senate races, if it's you know Colorado and it's Hinkenlooper and Gardner, um, you know, they're gonna get attention in Colorado, but it's gonna be a fraction of the attention that Trump and Biden are getting. So that's where ads really make a big difference. You know, Bradley, I have to agree with you on uh, earlier, you, you said Mike Bloomberg might have a problem having a boss. Um, you know, he was my boss uh, early on in my I, business. I career. know. Yeah. And, and, I've, and I've known Mike on a personal level. So, uh, yeah, he's quite the force. And I don't know if he could, he could deal with a, with a boss. But, you know, in terms of the popular vote, I mean, if even the popular vote goes with Biden, who do you think this? We started this conversation talking about CEOs. Who do the CEOs yeah. want to see in, in the White House in November? Would it be a Trump presidency again? I mean, look, I don't think so, because I think that if you are a CEO, um, you want some level of predictability. You don't want the world constantly thrown into chaos. When really bad things happen, like global pandemics, you want a competent response to it. Um, you don't want a world of constant racial unrest. Um, and so if you see Biden as a steadier hand, I think it's probably what you would want. Now, look, if Sanders were the nominee, I think it's a very different question and a very different answer. But I think because Biden is so middle of the road, so moderate, you know, the economy was was good for most of Obama's presidency. Um, I think that most CEOs would pick the stability of Biden over the volatility of Trump. 
Even with the tax cut, excuse me, with the tax hikes, he's- It depends on, it depends on where, where that goes. I, I think most CEOs would say, keep McConnell in the Senate uh, and put Biden in the White House. That way McConnell could block a tax increase, but we won't have the craziness of the Trump administration. That's probably their ideal situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, even with a tax hike, it kind of depends. We have a economy with 40 million people unemployed that's had a far bigger impact uh, on my business than tax hikes or tax cuts have either way. And so, yeah, in a perfect world, CEOs would rather have tax cuts and total stability. Um, but I think at the moment, if they had to pick one, they're going to pick stability. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thanks for bringing your uh, unique perspective to electionomics, Bradley. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. All right, everybody. Be sure to rate and review what you just saw. And please do follow me at Alexis TV News. Five stars. I'm sure this is five stars. <laughs> Has to be. And I'm at Rick J. Newman. And Bradley, do you want to put a website? Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, you can go to BradleyTusk.com or at BradleyTusk on Twitter. Sounds right, good. Next time, everybody. Okay. Thanks. Thank you, guys.